0: Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. So this is the time of year when many of us take a pause to spend time with our loved ones and think of others. So I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to celebrate the incredible power of community by putting together a very special episode. As humans, we evolved to be part of a tribe. We had to be part of a tribe in order to survive. But today, we're facing an epidemic of loneliness. Our busy, hectic, modern lives have resulted in so many of us feeling stressed, burnt out, and isolated. This is having a devastating effect on our physical health, our mental well-being and our levels of happiness. So, in this special end of year episode, we're going to celebrate the power of human connection. You're going to hear inspiring stories and wisdom from previous guests on my podcast. And you're going to learn, or perhaps relearn, what you already know deep down: that human beings are not wired to be isolated and lonely. If we want to be well, we simply have to put human connection and community at the heart of our lives. My first guest in this very special episode is the incredible Dr. Gabor Mate. In this clip from episode 37, he explains why we no longer live in a culture that meets our basic human needs and how loneliness and a lack of meaningful connection can have a devastating effect on our health.
1: You might liken modern society to a zoo where you take an animal from a natural habitat and you put them in a completely artificial, restricted situation and you expect him to stay as normal as he was out there in the wild. Essentially, that's what's happened to human beings in that in a very short space of time, in a blink of an eye from the perspective of evolution, we've gone from the hunter-gatherer, small band, communal attachment-based group To a society which is alienated, disconnected, and that disconnection is accelerating at a tremendous rate throughout the world, urbanization, it's taking people out of their villages and into the big cities where they're alone. So what we're having in is societies that are less and less natural to the actual makeup of human beings from the evolutionary perspective, which means that children are being brought up under increasingly artificial and disconnected circumstances. And... uh, Johan Hari, who's written a book recently on depression called Lost Connections, is pointing exactly at what happening in modern society, so that these lost connections characterize the modern world. And as they do, you're getting the spread of autoimmune disease into countries yeah. that never used to have it before. Yeah. So we think autoimmune disease is one of these, uh, or addictions for that matter. So if you look at the rate of addiction now in, in countries like uh, China and India, it's going up exponentially. Precisely because of the, uh, and, it's, and it's not a question of idealizing the old way of life. No. I mean, we can't go back. And, and, and of course, there's all kinds of benefits to, to progress and industrialization. Trouble is that as we progress, we forget what we've lost. So instead of combining progress, we're trying to hold on to what was best about some of the old ways. We just throw everything out. And, and we think we can reinvent ourselves. And as we do, we're making ourselves sick.
0: Yeah you right. And I think it's a really great point. We're not saying we need to go back to hunter-gatherer tribes. We can't. We, yeah. Not only should we not, we can't. And th- there yeah. are so many great benefits of the modern world. And yeah. as you say, industrialization, I guess it's it's how do we learn from the past? How do we learn from our evolutionary heritage? And what can we implement from that within the constraints of the modern world? That, certainly, that's how I see it. And you mentioned uh, Johan Hari's new book and I write a huge quarter of my book on stress is about relationships and yeah, our, yeah. our lack of connection these days. We've been told that we're more connected than we've ever been before. And mm-hmm. certainly in a digital sense, that may be the case. But you know, when we talk about real human, meaningful connection, what I see around me with the public, but what I also see in my practice as a doctor is I don't think we've ever been this disconnected and lonely.
2: And well,
1: we're more wired, but we're less connected, is, is how I would put it. Uh, yeah. Because genuine connection happens between people, not between pieces of technology. So as you and I are talking to each other, there's a real interaction. Yeah. When you speak, I'm looking at you, I'm listening to the modulation of your voice. I may nod in agreement or shake my head in disagreement, vice versa. But the communication is taking place on many different levels. That's a connection. If you're never having the same conversation online, it'd be a whole different um, ball game, and I'd have no idea actually who I'm talking to. They'd just be exchanging words. So we're wired together, but we're not actually connected. We're actually disconnected in this world because people are isolated modules, sending out messages via the uh, ethernet or the internet. Yeah. When it comes to addictions, it, it, it's that disconnection again. The, the, leaves us so alone. So we're traumatized in the first place, we then develop behaviors that soothe our pain, but which actually keeps us more isolated from other people, because we're ashamed of ourselves and we hide it and, and we uh, furtively seek out our addictive pleasures. And that disconnection then furthers our sense of isolation. That isolation furthers our pain and that pain further drives our addiction. So we live in a society that actually generates addiction in many of its members.
0: Yeah. For the past few decades, almost every year, levels of depression and anxiety have increased across the Western world. And as you heard in the last clip, Gabor and I both mentioned the great work of Johan Hari. Johan went on a 40,000-mile journey around the world to interview leading experts about what causes depression and anxiety, and what solves them. In this next clip from episode 94, he explains that although we've been told a story that drugs are the solution, in many cases, the cause is not in our biology, but in the way that we live.
2: Everyone listening to your program knows they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need clean air if I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at all sorts of things. I had to go to the dentist the other day. Believe me, I'm glad to be alive in, in this year. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And people aren't crazy or broken or weak to feel the pain of that. We are the loneliest society there's ever been. We're just behind the Americans. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. More people have nobody to turn to when things go wrong than any other option, right? Half of all Americans asked how many people know you well, say nobody. And I spent a lot of time talking to an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo, who was at the University of Chicago. He was an amazing guy and, and he was the leading expert in the world on loneliness, basically. And and Professor Cassiopo showed a few really fascinating things. I remember him saying to me, you know, why are we alive? Why do we exist? One key reason why you, me and everyone listening to this podcast exist is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time but they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating. right? Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. Um, and we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes. If you think about the circumstances where we evolved, if you were cut off from the tribe, if you had no one to turn to, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were in terrible danger. Those are still the instincts that we have. That's still how we feel. That's an appropriate response exactly. to the environment in which they, we were in. This to me is the most single most important insight I learned from all these people. If you are depressed, if you are anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs, your pain makes sense, right? What happens when we tell an exclusively or extremely heavily biological story, as my doctor told me, with the best of intentions is we say to people, this pain you feel doesn't mean anything, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. But that's not true. If you look at the evidence, now there are biological contributions to be sure, I want to stress that again. But when you look at the evidence, actually, the reasons why people are distressed in this culture, why it's rising year after year, make perfect sense. Yeah, I think you put it beautifully well. Um,
0: and I think it's really important that people understand that actually loneliness causes physical changes in our body. You know, the science shows Absolutely. that, you know, some research suggests that being lonely may be as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. When I talk to people, I say, are you surprised by that? I said, yeah, I'm surprised by that. But then you explain, well, hold on a minute. If you think about evolution, you think about if we weren't part of that supportive tribe around us, as you say, if we were on the on the outside, then you know, we were vulnerable to attack. So what happens? Your body responds, your, your stress response goes up, your immune system gets ranked up, you become inflamed
2: because your body is preparing you for when you get attacked. Absolutely. And there's a really good line that um, the, the brilliant psychoanalyst and writer Stephen Gross says, you know, if you touch your hand on a, to a burning stove and pull it away, right, that's very painful, but that's a useful pain signal, right? It's a necessary pain signal. When people with leprosy don't have that, they actually, that's how they get so badly injured because they can't feel that they're, for example, burning their hands or trapping in a car door or whatever, that's a necessary pain signal. The way Professor Cassiopo put it to me is uh, loneliness is a necessary signal to push you back to the tribe, right? Yeah. But if you've created a culture where people have disbanded their tribes, where actually we've told ourselves, you should live alone. You should be alone. Do it yourself. We tell these toxic messages all the time that the only person who can help you is you. Th- then what we've done is we've cut people off from understanding that deeper source of pain. And one of the things that's to me so beautiful and so inspiring is how close to the surface the answers are once you understand the problem correctly. So one of the heroes of my book is an amazing man called Dr. Sam Everington. Sam is a GP in East London, where I lived for a long time, a poor part of East London, although sadly Sam was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him like you do with just terrible depression and anxiety, and like me, like you, he thought there was some role for chemical antidepressants. but he could also see a couple of things firstly the people coming to him were depressed and anxious for perfectly good reasons, like loneliness. And secondly, chemical antidepressants were taking the edge off for some people, but most of them did become depressed again. So while he thinks they have value, they they weren't the ultimate solution. Um, So Sam decided one day to pioneer a different approach. One day a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling anxiety for seven years. Just a terrible state, barely leaving the house. And Sam said to Lisa, "Don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to pioneer something else." There was an area behind the doctor's surgery called um, called Dogshit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like, right? Just scrubland, basically. Uh, Sam said to Lisa, "What I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. We're going to meet at Dogshit Alley. I'm going to come too because I've been anxious. We're going to meet with a, gr- a group of other depressed and anxious people." We're going to find something to do together, right? It was called social prescribing. The idea: if the problem is loneliness, we're going to prescribe a group. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? Um, she found it unbearable. But the group started to talk about, okay, what can we do together? They decided to learn gardening. These are inner city East London people like me don't know anything about gardening, right? They decided to they look at YouTube, they started reading books, they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence. Yes. The exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. Absolutely, And even more importantly, I think they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to look out for each other, right? One of them didn't turn up. they go looking for them. I'll give you an extreme example. One of the people in the group had been thrown out, I think by his girlfriend. He was sleeping on the night bus, right? Everyone else was like, Well, of course you're going to be depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started pressuring Tower Hamlets Council, the local authority, to get him a home. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years and it made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway, small study, but it's part of a growing body of evidence that found that this kind of thing, social prescribing, particularly with gardening, was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, right, something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, the most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel so bad in the first place.
0: It's the quality of our relationships that actually determine the quality of our lives. And my next guests are both passionate about spreading the crucial message that relationships are one of the biggest predictors of happiness, health, and longevity. Professors Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz are co authors of The Good Life, lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness. They're the directors of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is an extraordinary research project that started all the way back in 1938 and is now in its 85th year. In the following clip from episode 364, they share why having high quality relationships may just be one of the most important things you can do for your mental and physical health. I think if you walk out on the street and you were to talk to people about their, let's say their longevity, their their health, both now and into the future, I think many people would immediately go to things like nutrition, Mm -hmm. physical activity, sleep, for example. Yet you guys are making the case that sitting above them all, potentially the quality of our relationships
3: Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I think we were surprised when we started to find how important relationships were for our physical health. And then when we started to look at other studies, and it's the loneliness research that's maybe the most compelling now, that you see these incredible links with the amount of time that people spend on the earth, the amount of time that they live. It's just extraordinary. And that relationship is of a similar magnitude to the things that we commonly think about as serious health risks like smoking and obesity. So there's so many indications of how powerful relationships are. I think we take them for granted and it's clear science is telling us that they're important. Hmm. So you mentioned
0: their relationships and physical health. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some people have to make a leap into the dark, right? I get it. Good relationships feel good, Mm -hmm. okay? We enjoy ourselves when we're in the company of people that we like, who mean something to us. But how does that then impact our physical
4: health? Well, that's the interesting research question. So, we're always asking if we see a connection between one thing and another, how does it work? What's the mechanism? And probably the best hypothesis that we have, for which we have the most evidence, is a hypothesis about stress that. Good relationships help us regulate emotion, particularly negative emotion. So stress is there all day long. I mean, something upsetting happens to me and I can literally feel my body change, go into fight or flight mode. And what we know is that when we have someone we can talk to, when I can go home and complain to my wife about my day, I can literally feel my body calm down Um, and What we know is that loneliness and social isolation are stressors, um, that we evolved to be social animals. So if we are too alone, what we think happens is that we stay in a low level fight or flight mode. The body doesn't return to equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And that means higher levels of circulating stress hormones like cortisol, higher levels of chronic inflammation. And those things can gradually break down multiple body systems, which is how you could get a connection between relationships and arthritis or between relationships and cardiovascular disease, because the stress hypothesis posits that these connections are with multiple body systems.
3: So this is why there's a Ministry of Loneliness in the UK. This is why our Surgeon General, our top health person, talks a lot about loneliness. It's a recognition of the importance of relationships to our health.
4: Everybody needs one or two what we call securely attached relationships. At one point in our study, um, we asked our participants, Who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And most people could list several people, but some people couldn't list anyone. And a few of those people were married and they couldn't list anyone. What we believe is that everybody, whether you're shy or extroverted, everybody needs at least one or two of what we call securely attached relationships, where you feel like someone will be there for me if I'm really in trouble.
0: Relationships are sometimes seen as the softer side of life. But as we've already heard, our social connections can have profound effects on our health. Next up is a clip from episode 67 with National Geographic Explorer and author Dan Buettner. Now Dan has led teams of researchers across the globe to discover the secrets of the Blue Zones. Geographical areas where high percentages of the population live long and active lives. In this clip, he explains how human connection and a sense of community can benefit our health and longevity in ways we might not imagine.
5: About 1,500 kilometers south of Tokyo, the islands of Okinawa, there's 161 of these islands, you find the longest-lived population in the history of the earth. And I thought, aha, now there's a good mystery. How do these islanders, you know, with no great technology, with no great access to uh, top-of-the-line medicine, how are they living so long and avoiding disease? So the longest-lived women in the world live in Okinawa. The longest-lived men live in the highlands of Sardinia, an area called the Nuoro province, six villages, 40,000 people. And you have about eight to 10 times more male centenarians there than you would expect to see in London, for example.
0: And do we know why there's that difference between male longevity and female longevity?
5: I can only hypothesize, okay, so in Okinawa, for example, women have much stronger social networks than men do. Men tend to be solo, and women form these and stick with these uh, social constructs known as a moai. So So they support each other, not only literally, but figuratively, they take care of each other. People who are rudderless in the world, they don't know why they wake up, they don't know how they fit in, they don't know why their lives matter. It is very hard to navigate a world when you don't feel like you need it. In Blue Zones, they live in places where if you don't show up to the Village Festival, if you don't show up to church, temple, or mosque, somebody could be pounding on your door saying, where are you? The purpose comes with mother's milk. There's... Ikigai in Okinawa, Plan de Vida in the Nicoya Peninsula, people know their sense of purpose, live their sense of purpose, and they have a rudder to get through every single day. And that eliminates not only the existential stress of do I matter, but it also um, makes day-to-day decisions really easy. I argue in the blue zone, the, the one most dependable thing you can do to add years to your life is to curate a circle of friends, four or five friends who, A, you can count on, but that also means you have to be willing to be counted on, on their bad days. Uh, people whose idea of recreation is walking or golfing or playing tennis. People who will keep your mind challenged. People in the blue zones are not only living long lives, they're living happy lives. They're rich, they're fulfilled, they're full of great social connection, they're full of meaning, they're they're full of the things that make life worth living. Social
0: connection can also greatly benefit our brain health. In this next clip from episode 167, Dr. Tommy Wood describes the crucial role that human connection plays in the health of our brains, and the powerful idea that your brain needs a reason to be alive. Just how important is connecting with others for our brain health?
6: When you really boil it down, social connection, again, is, is essentially the sort of foundational aspect of us as a species, right? We are a collectivist species. We benefit from being part of a social group, from having a place in that social group, from having um, a purpose within that group, uh, which gives us meaning. And having meaning is something that tells our body that it's worth being alive. Having meaning or not seems to have an effect on the immune system, has an effect on our physiology. And so without social connection, you're essentially not giving that input, which is that you have purpose, you have meaning, you belong. And that is one of the critical inputs for the the brain to to keep working. And one of the downstream or threads that comes out of this uh, demand-driven theory of cognitive decline is the grandmother hypothesis. The grandmother hypothesis states that rather than when you've procreated, you are essentially just a useless sack of meat, which is what some people will tell you about the evolutionary forces on our bodies, right? That you're just there to procreate. Once you've done that, there are no more evolutionary forces that are creating fitness, Right, and so like most people will say that the, your genes are just there to make you live to twenty or thirty years old, procreate, and then what happens after that doesn't really matter. However, the grandmother hypothesis would state that if you are useful and healthy longer into life, then you are available to help support your progeny, their progeny, and to keep your your tribe alive. Right, so you are actually increasing. The likelihood that your genes will be passed further into the future by being alive to be able to help the new parents or being able to look after the grandchildren. So, actually, there are evolutionary forces that exist to keep us healthy for as long as possible. However, you get to a point where you are no longer of use to the group. And then that's probably going to be a trigger for some kind of decline. Because as soon as you're no longer of benefit, you know, if we think about this from an evolutionary perspective, we think about, you know, hunter gatherers. You know, early humans. As soon as you're no longer of benefit, you are de- you are a detriment to your tribe, to your group. You're going to take up resources. People are going to have to care for you, which is, which they can't really afford to do. So that could trigger this period of decline. You know, you think about uh, wolves or dogs leaving the pack when they're old, so they can go and die peacefully in the wilderness. And humans used to do that in some uh, groups as well. So we are only giving ourselves the input that says, you know, you're worth being here, you're worth having some kind of function because you're part of a group and because you have purpose. And without social connection, it's almost impossible to have any kind of significant purpose because you don't know that you have purpose because you're not contributing to a, to a, some kind of goal or group that's greater than yourself. So I think that we've kind of bounced back from the philosophical to the physiological but at some level for us to survive and be healthy and functional requires some kind of social input that says you have meaning you belong you have purpose and so that's going to be critical to physical health mental health cognitive function Uh, and that requires social connection it requires other people to help you see
0: and learn that When a community comes together, incredible things can happen. In this clip from episode 94, Johan Hari shares the heartwarming story of how the residents of a small district in Berlin formed an unlikely community and the profound effects this had on everyone involved.
2: When individuals see themselves as part of a kind of connected tapestry of wider meaning, right, which would have happened in the tribes in which humans evolved, they feel much better about their lives. They feel much more satisfied. Naturally... I learned so much from scientists, some of the leading scientists in the world, and reading loads of studies. I think the place that taught me the most about depression and anxiety were not those people, actually. And I'll just tell you the story of what happened Please in this do. place, if that's okay, because it, it, it's something I think about every day.
0: This week, one of our podcast sponsors, Exhale Coffee, is offering my listeners a free trial bag of coffee. Now, many of us enjoy a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, but are all coffees the same? Well, the simple answer is no. The coffee that I drink and the coffee that I serve my guests before each episode of this podcast is Exhale Coffee. Now, Exhale is the first coffee to be sourced, roasted and lab tested specifically to maximise its antioxidants and anti-inflammatory potency. An independent lab test showed one cup of XL coffee has the same antioxidant power as 1.8 kilos of blueberries or 55 oranges. It also contains high levels of polyphenols, which promote gut health, and it's a rich source of vitamin B3, which boosts brain function and helps with energy and focus. For those of you avoiding caffeine, the good news is that they also have a delicious decaf, which is made using the mountain water process, using only pure glacial water from the highest mountain in Mexico and no nasty chemicals. For listeners of my show, Exhale Coffee is offering a free trial bag when you sign up for a subscription. There is no minimum term and you can cancel easily at any time. Try Exhale's Healthy Coffee and get your free trial bag by going to exhalecoffee.com forward slash live more. That's E-X-H-A-L-E coffee.com forward slash livemore. Bond Charge are also sponsoring today's show. Now, Bond Charge are a brand that is dedicated to helping you sleep better and live better. And they have a whole range of wellness products that my family and I have been using for many years. Now one of their newer products is proving very, very popular and that's their infrared sauna blanket which is much cheaper and more accessible than having a sauna in your own home. It's really easy to set up, takes less than a minute and I myself really enjoy using it. You can basically enjoy a quick 30 or 40 minute session whilst relaxing, reading or watching television. I also love their blue light blocking glasses, which I think are some of the highest quality out there. And in my house, all of the bedside lamps for myself and my children contain Bond charges, amber low light bulbs, which have made a huge difference. Until the 2nd of January 2024, as part of their Boxing Day sale, they are giving 25% off their entire product range which also includes blue light blocking glasses and low light bulbs. All you have to do is go to bondcharge.com. There is 25% off everything and the discount is automatically applied at checkout.
2: In the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous council estate in Berlin, uh, German Turkish woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She lives on the ground floor. The sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this is a council estate. Um, it's in a funny area. It's called Cottie. It's a poor part of what used to be West Berlin. And basically no one wanted to live there for years. It was a mixture of um, recent Muslim immigrants like Nuria, um, gay men and punk squatters, right? As you can imagine, these three groups didn't get on very well, but no one really knew anyone, right? No one knew who this woman was. People are walking past her window and they're worried about her and they're also pissed off because their rents are going up. Loads of people are being evicted. So they know they might be next. People start to knock on Nouria's door. They said, do you need any help? And at first Nouria said, fuck you. I don't want any help. Shut the door in their faces, right? They're like, well, we shouldn't just leave her. What should we do? And this was actually the summer of the revolution in Egypt. And one of them was watching it on the telly and they had an idea, right? Right. There's a big road that goes through Cotty into the centre of Berlin. And he said, you know, if we just blocked the road for a day, it goes right through this council estate. They said, if we just block the road for a day and, you know, we protest and we wheel Nuria out, there'll be a bit of a fuss. The media will probably come. They'll probably let us stay. There might even be a little bit of pressure to keep our rents down, right? So they decide to do it. They're like, why not? They block the road. Nuria's like, oh, I'm going to kill myself anywhere. I may as well let them push me into the middle of the street. And they sit there and they protest. And the media does come. It's a little bit of a kerfuffle that day in Berlin. And then at the end of the day, the police come and they say, okay, you've had your fun, take it all down. And the people there are like, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we want a rent freeze for this whole council estate. So when we've got that, then we'll take it down. But of course they knew the minute they left the barricades that they put up, the police would just tear it down anyway. So one of my favourite people at Cotty, Tanya Gartner, who's one of the punk squatters. She wears um, tiny little mini skirts, even in Berlin winters. She's quite hardcore. Uh, <laughs> Tanya had this idea in her flat. She had a klaxon, you know, those things that make a loud noise at football matches. So she went and got it. She came down and she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We can drop a timetable to man this barricade twenty-four hours a day until we've got what we want, until Nuri gets told she can stay, and until we get a rent freeze. And if the police come to take the barricade down, let off the klaxon. We'll all come down from our flats and stop them. So people start signing up to man this barricade. People who would never have met, right? So. uh, (laughs) <laughs> These very unlikely pairing. So Nuria, who's very religious Muslim in a full hijab, was paired with Tanya in her tiny little mini skirt, right? And I can't remember what night shift they got. If it was. It might be Tuesday nights. So they're sitting there, Tuesday nights, super awkward. They're like, we got. What have we got in common? We have got nothing yeah. to talk about. As the weeks went on, they started talking, and Tanya and Nuria realised there's something really profound in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 from her village in Turkey. She had two young children and her job was to raise enough money to send back for her husband to come and join her. Sitting there in the cold in cottage, she told Tanya something she never told anyone in Germany. After she'd been in Berlin for 18 months, she got word from home that her husband was dead. and She'd always told people that he died of a heart attack. He'd actually died of tuberculosis, which was seen as a kind of shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she never talked about she'd come to Cotty when she was even younger, when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family. She'd made her way. She lived in this punk squat. And she got pregnant not long after she arrived. So they both realised that they had been children with children of their own in this frightening place they didn't understand. Right? They realised they had loads in common. There were loads of these pairings happening over Cotty. There was a young young lad who kept being a Turkish-German lad who kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. He got paired with a very grumpy old white German guy called Dieter, who said he didn't believe in direct action because he loves Stalin, but in this case, he'd make an exception, who started helping him with his homework. He started doing much better at school. Um, Directly opposite this council estate, there's a a gay club called Zudblock. It's run by a man I love called Rick Hardstein, who, (laughs) to give you a sense of what he's like, um, the previous place he owned was called Cafe Anal. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is a pretty hardcore gay club, right? And when they when they opened it about two years before the protest began, you know, there's a lot of religious Muslims there. Some of them had smashed the windows. People were really pissed off. And when the protest began, Zudblock, the gay club, gave gave all their furniture to the protest. Um, and after a while, they said, you know, you guys could have all your meetings in our club. You could, you know, we'll give you drinks. We'll give you free food. And even the lefties at Cotty were like, look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for things so obscene I won't describe them on your podcast, right? It's not going to happen. But actually it did start to happen. As one of the Turkish-German women put it to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for about a year. One day, a guy turned up at the protest called Tung Kai, who was in his early fifties. And Tung Kai, when you meet him, it's obvious he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties and he'd been living homeless, but he has an amazing energy about him. He started asking if he could help out. Everyone liked him. And by this time they'd actually, the barricade had turned into a, a physical structure with a roof, right? A lot of them are construction workers. So they started saying to Tung Kai, you know, you should come and live in this thing we've built, right? It's quite nice. We don't want you yeah. to be homeless. He started living there. He became a much loved part of the protest camp in after he'd been there for nine months, one day the police came. They would come every now and then to inspect. And Tonkai doesn't like it when people argue. So he went to hug one of the police officers, but they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tonkai had been shut away for 20 years in a psychiatric hospital, often literally in a padded cell. He'd escaped one day, lived on the streets for a couple of months and made his way to Koti. At which point the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital. So this entire Kotti protest turned itself into a free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got, you know, they've had this person shut away for 20 years and suddenly they've got all these women in hijabs, these punks and these very camp gay men demanding his release. They're yeah. like, oh, they don't understand it. And I remember Uli Hartman, one of the protesters said to them, yeah, but you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. We love him. He belongs with us. And ma- many things happened at Cotti. I guess the headline is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the entire city that got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. They got Tunkai back. He lives there still. But the last time I saw Nuria, I remember her saying to me, You know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I would never have known. And, and so many of the people there, these insights were just below the surface. I remember um, Neriman Tanker, who's another one of the Turkish German women there, saying to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And I learned when I came to live in the Western world that what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began and I started to call all these people my home right? And she said, she realized in some sense, in this culture, we are homeless, right? There's a Bosnian writer called Alexander Heyman, who said, home is where people notice when you're not there. By that standard, lots of us are homeless. And it was so clear to me in Cotty, think about how unhappy these people were, right? And um, Nuria was about to kill herself. Uh Tonkai was shut away in a padded cell. Loads of them were depressed and anxious. In the main these people did not need to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to be seen. They needed to be loved and valued. They needed to have a sense that they were part of a tribe, that they had purpose and meaning in their lives. And I remember sitting with Tanya one time outside Zeblock and her saying to me, "You know, when you feel like shit and you're all alone, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying." And we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. And to me, this is the most important thing I learned, right? I love these people in Cotties, as I'm sure you can tell, but in one sense, they are not exceptional. They were entirely randomly selected people, right? Ordinary people have changed the world time and time again. They don't do it by sitting at home alone. They do it by joining up with other people. This hunger for reconnection and, and for rediscovery of meaning and other people and meaningful values is just beneath the surface yeah. for all of us, right? Uh, and, and arguably, it's the most important thing as
0: a society we should be trying to promote. That is profound. I can't stop thinking about it. At home is when someone notices when you are not there. Yeah. My next guest is Dr. Julian Abel, a retired consultant in palliative care. Julian was one of the leaders of a project which aimed to end loneliness and improve health in the English town of Froome. In this clip from episode 138, he describes the incredible results and explains why social relationships, compassion and a sense of community are so important for our quality of life our health and our well-being. What happened in Froome is remarkable. Maybe you could paint the picture for us. What was going on in Froome before? What did you and colleagues introduce? And what was the profound impact that you saw?
7: Froome is a market town. It's always had something of an independent streak about it going back through the years. And there's an incredibly good-natured, sensible clear-thinking GP called Dr. Helen Kingston. And uh, she understood that so much of what we do as doctors is not related to drug treatment and wanted people to feel supported by their community. So what she did is that she employed Jenny Hartnell, who's got a background in community development. And Jenny started a community development program from within the medical centre. It was really about bringing the community together and making use of the incredible wealth of resources that are present in every community. And then if people are feeling lonely or isolated, which is very very common and not and is worse in illness, in fact, then there's a way of connecting that community resource to what happens inside the medical practice. There's a, a lady called Kathy who who was a businesswoman who got a very severe form of acute rheumatoid arthritis and she didn't really know the people around her that that well. And the rheumatoid arthritis actually put her in a wheelchair within the space of three weeks, and her her whole life was devastated. So she went to the doctor and said, look, I need a sense of hope that this isn't my life from now on. And so the doctor said, "Uh, okay, look, I'm going to get you to see a health connector. And so Rose, a health connector, went to see Kathy and and Kathy said, I need to meet some other people who are going through this because I need to know that I'm not stuck. And then she's connected to this incredible wealth of people of all the stuff that's going on in the community, whether it's talking cafes or whether it's a knitting group or an art group or a healthy walking group or whatever it is. And Kathy makes this journey from being somebody who was relatively isolated and focused to being somebody who is deeply engaged in the community and she describes the outcome of it about how she has got friends for life and she knows that they are there for her and she is there for them and and her life is transformed not only does she regain her health? She regains her happiness, and that the the combination of the the medical treatment of her disease with this wealth of support transforms her life. When, when you say she regains
0: her health, right? So she gets tapped into that when she's been diagnosed, and I think you said she's in a wheelchair. So when you say she's regained her health,
7: what what happens? her pain and her mobility improve and obviously some of that is related to um, treatment of her disease but her well-being improves, her sense of social connectedness, her sense of who's around her, who her friends are, her joy in life, her reason for living, everything is transformed. So it's a, a personal journey of increasing health and well-being and transformation the outcomes of Froom were totally unexpected. We saw emergency admissions drop by 30% at a time where they were increasing everywhere else. And there are no interventions ever which have reduced population emergency admissions.
0: What's interesting, Julian, for me, as you described her improvements there, is that we started off talking about pain and mobility. And of course, the medical treatment may have helped that, but I I also have seen enough to know that actually it could also be a lot of the other stuff as well. The feeling of connectedness can can absolutely reduce pain in my experience. But you said at the end, her, you know, her joy in living, her love for life, that all that sort of stuff, the kind of softer stuff that often in, in medicine we don't measure. But in many ways, that's the most important part of being alive. The most important part of being a human being on
7: planet Earth is how much fulfillment, how much joy do we get day to day? If you start to deal with what matters most in life and and what matters most is so often the people we know and love in the places we know and love, you know, that if you start to work with all of that, then a similar kind of transformation that happened to Kathy can take place. And of course, if people are feeling loved, and secure, then their anxiety goes down, their pain levels go down. And actually, you know, then you start producing all the things that we naturally produce as human beings, including oxytocin and our, uh, endorphins, which are the morphine type compounds that we naturally produce inside us.
0: I can't get that out of my head that your biochemistry, your biology, your physiology changes when you have close social connections when you're compassionate to someone else or they're compassionate to you it matters so much
7: those moments where we feel that the love and compassion we all recognize them and there might be there might be deeply profound moments like the moment we first see our child or we kiss the person we love or or we hold our child's hand any of those moments they they're more than just a, an emotion. They, they, you, you can feel physically different, but they happen on a small scale as well. Like when you go to the shops and you... you chat to somebody. And when you have that conversation, you feel like, well, this is good. This is a, I I enjoyed that and I appreciate it. And all of those things, although they are an emotion, they also have got a physical, a biochemical and hormonal components to them. But I guess the essence is that we all know that it's the right thing it's heartwarming. Those moments, even those those light moments where you have a gentle chat with someone, they're heartwarming. We feel it and it sustains us. When communities come together, as Cormac Russell of uh, Nurture Development says, it's about what's strong, not what's wrong. That we build relationships and, and we recognize the strength in all of us. And we start to create the Warmth of the environment where we can start to solve the problems that we face. And it doesn't matter whether those problems are financial or environmental or whatever comes to the surface communities acting together through the warmth of human relationships is how we get the transformation and it goes back to what you were saying this is not so much the individual but it's people together it's communities and and that the reason why that's so powerful is because that's how we evolved we evolved in communities it's a a really important part of human evolution
0: So why do we often not prioritise human connection in our lives? Well my next guest is Laurie Santos, Professor of Psychology at Yale University and in this clip from episode 151 she explains why our instincts about what will truly make us happy often lead us in the wrong direction.
8: It'd just be nice if our brain was, like, pointing us towards the things that were really going to make us happy. If we went after the stuff that we were really going to like – But the data suggests that that's just not the case. There are all these domains where we think, if I could only get X, then I would be happy. But then we get that X and it just doesn't work. You know, many of us think, oh, if I could just get that beach house or that new car, or even just, you know, at a local level, I'm just going to buy these new shoes, it'll make me happy. The data suggests that, yeah, it makes you happy for like, you know, a split second. It doesn't kind of give you lasting happiness. It doesn't even give you happiness that lasts for as long as we think. Um, And so there's all these ways where we think that changing our circumstances is going to boost happiness. But in fact, it just doesn't work. The flip side, though, is there's all these different interventions we can do to boost our happiness. One of the biggest behaviors that works super well for improving well-being is social connection. Um, One of the most famous papers in Positive Psychology by the psychologists Marty Seligman and Ed Diener um, say that uh, social connection and feeling socially connected is a necessary condition for very high happiness. You just simply don't find highly happy people who don't also feel Feel socially connected. Um, but we also know from the intervention work that improving your social connection, making new social connections, even talking to strangers on your commute, can actually boost up your well-being in ways we really, really don't expect. And these types of effects hold across personality variables. You know, So you get the same sorts of boosts of happiness for social connection for introverts and for extroverts. It seems to work in ways we don't expect.
0: What does the research say about talking to strangers and talking to people we don't know, because I think there's some quite nice research there, isn't there, showing us just how impactful those interactions are?
8: yeah and just how wrong we are about those interactions. you know this is another domain where at least my intuition is that, yeah, maybe it'll make me feel okay, but like you know it's not a major force in our happiness. In fact, if you you know plot me on a train, you know, going to work in the morning, you know maybe I'd talk to somebody, but usually I'd put my headphones on and listen to a podcast or you know get some work done or try to get through some email. Um, and it turns out that this is a mistake when it comes to maximizing your happiness. There's some lovely work by the uh, University of Chicago psychologist nick epley um who who did direct studies on this where he uh found some subjects who are about to do their daily commute on a train what he tells subjects is either for the rest of the train ride don't talk to some anybody please try to enjoy your solitude or for the rest of the train ride just do what you normally do it's kind of the control condition or for the rest of the train ride i want you to try to make a meaningful social connection with somebody like talk to someone and don't just talk about the weather like really try to get to know them um what do people predict? Because he has one group of subjects predict ahead of time, which is going to make people feel happy. And people predict that the enjoy your solitude condition is going to feel awesome, right? They they predict that that's going to maximize their happiness. And they don't just predict that the social connection condition is going to feel neutral. They predict that it's going to actively suck. That it's going to take them down from baseline. And what Nick finds is just the opposite. It's that solitude condition that feels yucky. The social connection condition makes you feel great. And I think this is a problem, right? This is another domain where we have these bad intuitions about what makes us happy. And what's worse is it doesn't just affect our behavior. It, it changes the structures that we create. You know, I'm sure, you know, in the UK, they have, the, you know, quiet cars on trains and things like that. You know, Nick's evidence suggests that that's not necessarily a way to maximize pac- passenger experience, right? We would maybe be better off with like a chatty car where you go on the car and everyone's like talking and interacting and getting to know one another. But, you know, those are not the systems we build in because we have these incorrect theories about what's going to make us feel good.
0: The next clip comes from Stephen and David Flynn, otherwise known as the Happy Pair. They have a mission to create a healthier, happier world and have built a community around their cafe off the same name in their hometown in Ireland. All the way back on episode 38, they spoke to me about how fundamental community is to our health and happiness and why connecting with others. Can bring us joy. Loneliness is something that is endemic in society these days. Um, and, and when people talk about loneliness, they often imagine elderly people, you know, living by themselves. But I could tell you that as a, as a doctor, I'm seeing a lot of young guys, you know, particularly between the age of 30 and 40, who are lonely in the sense that, sure, they're, they're, they've got jobs, they're seeing people, but they're not actually making time to see their friends. They're too busy. You know, we're learning more and more that being lonely is as harmful on your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, Mm. which is just, it's just profound for people listening to this who don't live in a very tightly knit community like you guys do. Is there stuff that they can learn about how they can create communities to help them lead happier and, and healthier lives? Just taking a quick break to let you know that I have finally found the time to bring out my very own journal. Now if you have read any of my books or been a long-time listener of my podcast, you will know that I am a huge fan of journaling. I genuinely believe it is one of the most impactful things that you can do to improve the quality of your life. It can help improve sleep, improve decision making and reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. It can also decrease emotional stress, make it easier to turn new behaviours into long-term habits, improve relationships, and ultimately help you lead a more mindful and intentional life. All of that for an enjoyable habit that is really, really simple. Now, over the last two decades, I have seen tens of thousands of patients, and I've learned that if I can help my patients ask themselves the right questions they're better able to create healthier and happier lives. So my new journal is called the Three Question Journal. And in it, you will discover what I consider to be the three most impactful questions that you can ask yourself every morning and every evening. Now, these questions will help you appreciate what you already have, focus on what really matters, but they will also help you non-judgmentally and compassionately Identify where in life you can learn and grow. Now, answering these three questions will take you less than five minutes, but I can assure you that this simple practice will have a transformative effect on your life. You can see all the details at drchatterjee.com forward slash journal or by clicking on the link in the show notes in your podcast app. The journal comes in three beautiful colors and has a gorgeous linen cover. You can check it out at drchatterjee.com forward slash journal. Now, in the UK and North America, as the weather becomes colder, the nights become darker, more and more people are coming down with seasonal infections. Now, nutrition is really, really important for the health of our immune system. And that's why I'm delighted that AG1 are sponsoring today's show. Now, I always want to make it really clear, in an ideal world, Everyone would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I know from over two decades of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to do that despite our best intentions. This is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. It's a science-driven formulation of 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. And the best thing is that all of this goodness comes in one convenient daily serving that makes it really easy to integrate as part of your daily routine. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over five years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It can help support energy and focus, Gut health and digestion. And of course, it also helps support a healthy immune system. So, if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. For listeners of my show, you can get a free one year supply of vitamin D, which is a crucial ingredient for your immune system. And you get five free AG1 travel packs with your first order. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com forward slash live more. That's drinkag1.com forward slash live more.
9: Brilliant. Love it. Uh, I think the first one I'd totally validate with everything what you're saying. I know now one of the leading causes of disease nowadays is not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's isolation, loneliness and depression. And that's what you're saying is the root of so many of these diseases, as you're saying. And interesting enough, when we were here, we were on our way over traveling this morning, we were reading stuff about the Blue Zones and what the Blue Zones say is what's number one in terms of longevity, health and happiness. It's not kale, it's not yoga, it's not swimming in the sea. It's the tribe, it's the tribe of people you surround yourselves. It's the community that's number one in terms of longevity in the, in the communities that live the longest and kind of most wholesome kind of lives, you know. I remember a friend was telling me, it was Sarah, after we were swimming in the sea, we were back having breakfast in the happy pair. And uh, she was telling me about an interesting guy who, you know, lived in just a normal housing estate and he decided, I I wonder what happens if I pull down the wall of my garden and put a swing and a bench in it and he happened to live on on a corner of of the road and he found it was amazing. Strangers would come and sit down at his bench. He'd come out of his house and suddenly he talked to them and they went from being a stranger to someone he knew and then from getting to know them more he was hanging out and they became dear friends. So I think it's in modern day society it's just connecting with another human to be more intimate, to show our vulnerability and I think that's ultimately it and I think anyone who's listening to this, it's simply like I know we're on our way down to London later and London can feel so lonely because everyone's in such a rush. They're so busy. But it's amazing when, when we're, I guess, approaching London as a foreigner in for two days. You're really excited. Yeah. You're chatting away to anyone on the tube. And like initially, say, say you're in the tube and you pull out, you know, a little maybe it'll be like a, a tub of berries and you offer the person next there like they, they think it's nearly like poisoned. Yeah. But, but slowly, if you offer another person, another person and four people reject, but one person said yes. And then you go back to the others and they'll all take one. And then suddenly you're talking and it's amazing just... It's
0: great that you guys persevere with that and make, you know, all it takes is one person you to... There's great conversations in
9: the tube. Like I've been surprised that I quickly can get to something deep and significant. And I think that's the challenge of society nowadays. Like there's never been a time where there's more kind of stimulation, more demands on us, more kind of... We're, we're busier than we, we've ever been. But ultimately, this is a challenge which we, we personally both find is that you've... It's constantly you have to catch yourself and go, okay... Now, This is where it's at. This is life. This is everything. It's to to breathe, to take it easy. And when we were discussing earlier, when I talked about it's often you meet people that are terminally ill or who've kind of had a near death experience or something where they really, they really appreciate the moment where they're living life differently. They're not going around on autopilot like I I often am, you often are, I'm sure all of us kind of in some form, we go in this robotic quick, quick, more, 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 where it's only when you can really catch yourself and kind of go, okay, life is now. It's about connection.
0: Life can be busy, and it's so easy to forget to make time to catch up with friends. But spending time with our friends is so important. Coming up, we'll hear again from Professors Robert Wardinger and Mark Schultz as they share the benefits that friendships can bring to our lives. But first is my good friends and fellow podcast host, Drew Purahit. In this clip from episode 80, He explains why we need deep connections to others in order to truly thrive.
10: Most people don't realize that they have a friendship and a disconnection problem. We have people around us, we have friends online, there's people that we're following. It doesn't see, we're not isolated, we're not in the woods somewhere living in a cabin by ourselves, not seeing anybody. So most people don't even recognize that there's a challenge when it comes to deep, meaningful, connected friendships in their life and the impact that it has on everything else that they care about. Friendships, connections, deep, meaningful relationships, they impact every aspect of our life from our health to our happiness. Every area of our life is touched by friendships, but just like stress, because it's not always obvious, it goes overlooked. If you wanted to, a human being, especially in a major city in the Western part of the world, could go an entire few weeks without seeing another human being interacting with somebody that they need to know. They can order uh, food on their phone (laughs) through an app and have it delivered to them. They could watch Netflix. They could do all their job and computer work. By themselves, we're not relying on other people for our daily survival. But I actually would argue that if you wanna thrive in life, If you have big dreams and goals that you want to give attention to, if you want to feel love and deeply connected to the people in your world, if you're going through a challenging time in your life, maybe you're a new parent for the first time, if you're starting a business and you want to create something incredible, the bigger your goals and dreams are, the more you actually need deep, meaningful friendships around you to support you in that process. So we went from this time period in history where we were relying on each other for survival. Now we actually don't really need each other for survival Necessarily, people that we know intimately know, friendships, but in a way, people are a little confused. They're confused because, hey, I'm living, I'm doing my job, I'm driving to work, I'm I'm getting through the day. And you can almost forget that you're missing out on something. What's the value of sitting down in the morning, going to coffee with a friend and saying, you know what? I've had a really tough week. And this is what's on my mind. And even if that friend doesn't give you advice, just them listening profoundly lets your nervous system know that you are not alone. And that's why I'm raising the alarm when it comes to having us check in and saying, just because you're surviving doesn't mean necessarily that you're thriving in your life.
0: Yeah, I mean, so powerful. And I guess for most of our evolution, Having a tight-knit community, having really good friends was essential. It was critical. You wouldn't be able to thrive. You wouldn't be able to survive without it. So it's gone from being critical to now being optional.
10: But if we don't start having a conversation about why it's important and how to start integrating these deep connections and friendships and community into our life, we will start to suffer from the results of missing out. When you see firsthand the impact that having deep connections makes in your life, you start to realize that it's important to prioritize. No different than some of your listeners who are prioritizing their sleep or their mindfulness or their mindset or their diet. You make it a priority because you see the value of when it's there and you see the value when it's not there. And again, for anybody who maybe hasn't seen that, it usually shows up when we're going through challenges in our life. When we fall down, when we go through a tough time in our life, a breakup, you know, transitioning jobs or careers, a business idea not working out, a challenge that we're having with our kids or our spouse, it's usually then when we look up and say, do I have people around me that can lift me up when I'm down And if you don't feel that you have that, that's step one is recognizing that maybe I have a friendship, community, and tribe problem, a challenge, right? So once you've recognized that there's value for it, just like integrating a morning routine that you talk about in your book, it doesn't actually take that much time in our actual life. It's not about running around and having the most amount of friends. I love human connection and I really get fueled by people. Not everybody's like that. I have an amazing sister, my younger sister, who has a smaller group of friends, doesn't like being around a bunch of new people all the time. And yet the one thing that she does is she makes these regular occurrences in her calendar to check in on connection and say, how can I strengthen the Couple, the few deep, meaningful bonds that I have. And it can be as simple as a coffee date that you do with individuals, it could be as simple as scheduling a phone call to chat with your best friend from college, who you still consider your best friend, but they don't live in the same town as you. It's not about quantity. It's about that quality. But you will never make it a priority if you don't firsthand see the difference that it makes in improving your life. When I have something that I've gone through in my week that's challenging, and I can go to a friend and talk about it, that's when I make the connection that I'm so thankful for the friendships in my life. Let's say you do have friends and you're not seeing them in your area, which is very common. You're not making time for them. The question that I ask you is that, what rituals do you have on your calendar? Do you have something that I call, and is one of my number one tips when it comes to this, do you have an opt Out event. An opt out event is something that regularly happens on your calendar with a group of friends. Maybe it's even once every two months. Once every two months, we're going to get together on a weekend, and we're going to go to this thing. And it's a reoccurring event in the calendar. And you only have to let the group know if you can't make it. I have one of these events in my life. Every Thursday morning, there's a group of my guy friends. We have an opt out event, and that event is we go on a hike together. It's one hour. We get up really early on Thursday. Some of the guys in the group have kids. Everybody's busy. They have businesses. And it's the bond and it's the community of walking and talking and just feeling like with you're with another group of individuals that understand you. And the most interesting of topics come up. People open up, open up about challenges they're facing in their marriage. They open up about things that are not going great in work. Whatever it is... They know that once a week, and I'm not saying that everybody out there has to do this. I'm just giving an example. It's what you do, right? It's what we do. And we do it. We make it a priority because we've seen how much of an impact it's had for us. We've been doing this now for four years. Years and their wives, their wives come to them and say, You gotta go to MMT. You got, we call it Man Morning Thursday, right? (laughs) You gotta go because you're a completely different human being when you come back. It makes you a better father, a better uh, husband, a better partner, has you show up more in different areas of your life that's just one example of something that I do that anybody who's listening can do. And it doesn't have to be with a big group or a hike or take an hour. It's just simply having reoccurring event on your calendar to connect with your friends. When I went through the hardest challenges in my life and I had a tribe around me that said, Hey, how can we help you? I'm so thankful for having these individuals in my life. That's when I look back and reflect that, I'm so glad I put all this time and effort and energy into friendships. And I don't want to just say that we rely on our friendships during, you know, yeah. these macro stresses as you talk about. How about just fun and enjoyment? My week is more fun when I take a few moments. I'm, I'm lucky that I am in an office building with one of my friends that is a few offices down for his company. Even if it's five minutes, I pop in and I say, hey, what's up, man? How's your day? Amazing. But I may not see him for the rest of the week. That actually leaves me with a little boost of energy that I come back to my daily life with.
3: We tend to invest a lot in our primary attachment, our, our primary relationship, an intimate partnership. And that's a lot to invest in one person, all the things that we can get out of relationships. So you talked about, you know, the ways in which our self and connection with others, we learn about who we are, the kinds of support that we need from other people, the kinds of fun that we can have with our mates. That there are so many things that relationships give us that it makes sense that distributing that among not just one person, but a collection of people might have some benefits for us as well.
4: There's a romantic ideal in the culture now that didn't used to be there. The romantic ideal is if my primary relationship is good, I don't need anybody else. That's a fiction, a complete fiction. Actually, Eli Finkel, one of our colleagues has written a book called The All or Nothing Marriage, where he talks about this and about the idea that we We imagine that the relationship isn't good if we need to go elsewhere for some of our fun, for some Mm -hmm. of our confiding, for whatever else we need. And when in fact the truth is that we get many different things from different kinds of relationships and we want that to be the case ideally.
3: And there, there's a if we think about what we know, just a, a basic ideas about a secure attachment and a connection to other people. That when we look at infants, infants on the playground or toddlers on the playground, they'll they'll social reference we call it. They'll they'll see kids out there. They're a little nervous, so they look back at their parent and is it okay? Right, and a parent nods that an adult relationship can provide that same kind of support. Right. So for you know a, a strong relationship, it could be a primary relationship or it could be a friendship that we have. Bob says you know you can do this, right? That's encouragement like the kid on the playground, you know, go out and do this. Um, It would be good for you to do that. So good relationships are in some ways outward facing, right? They allow us to have new Mm. experiences. They're they're the basis, that that kind of support basis that gives us the confidence to try new things. Bob, you want to write a book? Yeah, Let's write a book together. You know, that's that's what what a relationship is about.
4: You know, and a hallmark of a securely attached relationship is, where you feel the freedom to take risks because the other person will support it. Yeah.
3: Friendships are particularly prone to... To distancing that we 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 sort of let our friendships wither. We we figure that they're going to work, and we don't have to sort of lean in and and put energy into them. So we talk in the book about this idea about social fitness, and social fitness applies to all of your relationships. But we need to kind of exercise those relationship muscles to really connect with people, to to spend time, to allot time that we can, you know, be together with the people that are important to us. And friends are particularly vulnerable, I think, because of this idea that they're they're folks that we choose. And oftentimes we make friends through the activities that we're doing in life. So they might be schoolmates from university that, uh, we're no longer doing the same activities. So we have to figure out ways to keep those relationships going. Whereas relatives, I think we often feel that connection around holiday times or family events, that there's, there are ways in which they keep going. But I think the the kind of bigger issue here is that there's so many distractions today for our time that all of us spend a lot of time on screens these days, sometimes doing work, sometimes being distracted. could be by social media or traditional media, but we we have to really kind of harvest our time for the things that are most important for us. And it's harder and harder to do that with these devices that pull us away from those things that are critical for us.
4: Um. Doing this research, I've realized that I have to start taking my own medicine. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I realized that particularly once my kids were grown and out of the house and they weren't like pulling me away and saying, dad, do this or drive me here, that I could just work all the time. Mm
10: -hmm.
4: Um, And so what I've had to do is be much more intentional about scheduling walks with people, uh, scheduling dinners out. Uh, Mark and I have a call every Friday noon. And we talk, yes, we talk about our writing and our research, but we also just talk about our lives. And I find that if I'm not active, really active every week in doing things with people who I want to keep current with, it'll, it'll wither away. And so I'm doing more of that now than I ever did when I was younger.
3: And, yeah. and there are definitely points during the life one time is middle age when, you know, we get pulled away from those connections more, that we have responsibilities, like family responsibilities. Our kids are also calling for our attention and they need us. Um, late life is another moment when folks are in retirement and changing, you know, their lives in important ways. So any transition is a point where friendships that have been important are threatened in some ways. We really need to lean in and take care of them.
4: I would say think of someone... You've let go or someone you miss and would like to connect with again and simply take out your phone and send them a little text or an email or use the phone to use your voice to call them and simply say, hi, I was just thinking of you and wanted to connect. And you will be amazed at how often people will be thrilled to hear from you
3: yeah so i think another critical idea is it's never too late that those who feel like they just have you know had a hard lot in life that they don't feel connected to others that they wish their friendships could be better than they are it's never too late there are things that we can do starting now that can really have an impact on our lives technology can have such a pervasive impact in all areas
0: of our life from our health and happiness to the quality of our relationships Coming up, we'll hear again from Professor Laurie Santos as she describes some fascinating research that shows how even the presence of a phone can affect the way we connect with others. But next, it's Dr. Anders Hansen, a Swedish psychiatrist, a globally renowned speaker and best-selling author with his own TV series exploring the human brain. In this clip from episode 381, we discuss how overusing technology can get in the way of meaningful social connections.
11: The most valuable thing in today's society is not gold or yen or euros or pounds. It's human attention. And a number of companies have been incredibly good at grabbing that attention. If you try to find the the customer service on Facebook, you realize that it's very hard. And that's because you are not the customer of Facebook. You are the product. Every second that we spend on our screens is money for them. And they had just gotten better and better and better at doing that. And as a consequence, we spend more and more and more time on our screens. And today for adults, it's somewhere between four to five hours. For teenagers, it's five, perhaps even six hours. These things are difficult to measure because it increases so fast. And what's the consequence of that? Well, that is that we, when we spend so much time on this, we don't sleep as much. We don't move as much, and we don't meet as much in real life. And all of these things, exercise, sleep, and meeting in real life, are protecting us against depressions. So it's, in modern life, we become more susceptible to depressions and anxiety because protective factors are being eroded by modern technology. It's not what we do online that is most important. It's what we don't do when we are online.
0: I think many of us intuitively know that we feel better when we have not spent hours looking at our phones or scrolling Instagram or whatever it might be. And I appreciate everyone has a different relationship with things like Instagram. Some people use it to follow inspirational accounts or catch up with family. I understand all that. But as a society, it is very clear that these things are having For all their potential benefits, there are also some very, very worrying negatives. But I think most people intuitively know that phone use or excessive phone use is a problem. Yet, despite us talking about it, despite them hearing about it, a lot of people just aren't able to change what they do.
11: Because it's so difficult smartphones, they are super stimuli. There is nothing that is so rewarding in nature as TikTok, for instance. Every time you turn TikTok on, you have a $10 billion artificial intelligence directed towards you to figure out what should I show Rangham so that he doesn't turn off because every second of his time on this platform is money for us. And so I think personally that we have been very naive in implementing these incredibly powerful technologies, especially directed to children oh. and teenagers without any regulation. And we feel bad and guilty because we constantly return to our phones. I do that as well. Uh, and I've just realized that it's not so just about characters. These are very powerful stimuli, yeah. and the only way to... Fix that is to create distance to them. Don't have them around all the time. They are great tools for some things, but don't have them around all the time because they will be too attractive.
0: This modern epidemic of distraction is so harmful because anything good in life comes from presence. Everything good in life comes from presence. Deep focus at work, me and you interacting now with no phones here, just me and you sitting across the table, me chatting to my wife about something important, me chatting to my children, right? me hanging out with my buddies and having a laugh. All those things require attention and presence. Yeah,
11: yeah.
0: If you're gonna get the true value of them, all of those experiences get diminished when we can't focus, when we cannot maintain our attention. So I, I guess what I'm trying to get to, Anders, is how do we change things? What do we do if we look at the addiction with smartphones? If I look at what's happening with children now, you can have quite a negative view about the future of humanity. You think, well, actually, where does this go in five years, in 10 years? Yeah. Where do we end up in 20 years?
11: There's
0: a book called Reclaiming Conversation, which is brilliant. Yeah,
11: I read it. Yeah. I, I
0: love it. Yeah. And this whole idea that we're losing the art of conversation, this is one of the things that makes us human. And many kids and teenagers, apparently, according to Sherry and her research, prefer to communicate electronically because it's more predictable. I've never forgot that since I read it, where you can edit a text message. You can check it over a few times, get it perfect before you send it. But in real life now, me and you, we have to risk saying something wrong, getting our words jumbled, right? Maybe trying to tell a story and forgetting it halfway through. That's the risk that we yeah, are running yeah. by having this real-time conversation. But it's also something that is part of humanity. It's part of who we are. Yeah. Right? We're not wired for these perfectly edited
11: communications, are we? Absolutely. That's a good point. And I think loneliness is something for us that's boring. But historically, loneliness was death. To be excluded from the group, then you were gone be part of a group was as important as having food. That's why we have so strong instincts to create bonds to other people. We we, we read one another. We're, We're very good at that. And we try to create bonds, social bonds. And we want to belong to a group at all costs. Now, those social needs, they were created during millions and millions and millions of years where we met physically. And now, all of a sudden, we we meet like this and we can replace some of that with a screen. But we can't replace all of it. Mm. It's not just what your face expression on the screen. You know, it's so many more signals that we are constantly uh, registering. And if we, we all felt that during COVID, when we spent so much time on our screens, that they were good for helping us during a difficult period. But most of us felt very lonely and isolated. And that shows, I think, that there's a purely physical dimension to our incredible strong social need. And when that need is being eroded by these incredibly powerful super stimuli, we spend six hours on this, the brain thinks that we're lonely. And, as, and if we're lonely, well, then we will die. That, that's the mortal danger. And then we feel crappy, of course.
0: We have to intentionally create some rules for ourselves. Because if we don't, we'll end up allowing... Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to distract us and untrain our focus.
11: Exactly. And there's actually been experiments made where you have two people talking to a stranger. They sit in front of one another and there's a table in between. Yeah, And they, they talk for 10 minutes about the subject. And on half of these tables, there is a notebook, paper and pen. And on the other half of the tables, there's a phone. And they don't pick up the phone. But it turns out that the the pairs who have a phone on their table, they find their, their discussion less interesting. They even find the person they're talking to less reliable. And that's probably because you have to think, I'm not going to pick up my phone, I'm not going to pick up my phone, I'm not going to pick up my phone. So it, ste- it steals some of your mental bandwidth just by being around. Yeah. And that that's why we have to create a d- distance to it. And we feel guilty for this. We feel, you know, I have a bad character because I can't help myself picking up all the time. But we shouldn't because these are incredibly powerful stimuli. And as again, someone is making money from that.
8: my colleague Liz Dunn, who's a professor at UBC and studies the impact that technology has on happiness. And, and she she kind of has this wonderful metaphor. She says, imagine if instead of like, you know, to a restaurant at dinner, instead of bringing my cell phone, I brought this big wheelbarrow. And in the wheelbarrow, I had a printout of every email I've ever had since 1997. You know, like like fo- photo albums on top of photo albums of me and my vacations my husband and like stuff I've eaten. You know, I had videos, like all these DVDs of like cats and porn and a printout of every tweet that every, you know, U.S. president has sent in the last couple weeks, piles and piles of newspapers that go back many, many years. If I brought a wheelbarrow filled with like DVDs and printouts and photos and all that stuff, it'd be really hard to sit at dinner and just have a normal conversation with my husband at that restaurant because I'd want to be peeking through like, oh, let's look at this cat video, honey. Or like, You know, like, oh, porn, like that seems interesting, right? Like it'd be really hard to ignore that. And the idea is that, like, your brain knows that on the other side of your phone is all that stuff. Like, your brain's not stupid. It recognizes where there's rewarding stuff. And it means that every kind of normal conversation we want to have in real life in some sense competing with those other stimuli. We have that wheelbarrow and it's in our pocket all the time. It's in our kids' pockets all the time as they go to school, as they try to have dinner with us and so on. And I think we haven't, even when we're not using our phones, we don't necessarily recognize the hit that they're taking on our attention and on our motivation. And that's the kind of thing that Liz Dunn studies. She looks not necessarily at how much you're not paying attention when you're using your phone, but also the mere act of having your phone around. What does that do to your attention and your social connection. She does this lovely study where she has people sitting in a waiting room and they can either have their phones out with them or or not, right? Their phones are away in another room. And what she finds is that people smile 30% less when they just have their phones present. And I think, you know, this makes sense, right? Like if you've got your phone there, you're just going to be tempted to look at it. It's kind of drawing your attention. You're just naturally less inclined to look at the people around you. And if you multiply that 30 percent effect by, say, walking around on the tube in London or just like walking around any major city and everyone has these phones, you know, what is that doing to our social connection? I think we simply don't understand the magnitude that we're kind of getting our attention stolen by these devices
0: yeah, it's insidious, and I think it's an experiment that I don't think any one of us has consciously signed up for. You know, I feel sometimes when I talk about these things that you're going up in the face of the direction that society is going, and I think that makes it really challenging. I know you, you talk about when the phone's not there. Some of my happiest moments recently are when I've lost my phone or it's been in my car. I left it at my mum's house, and I thought, "Ah, oh, screw it, I'll get it tomorrow," and just. There's just lightness around because.
8: Yeah, you're noticing you're like trees, like the sun, you know, <laughs> or just yeah. like people, I smile at people. No, it's really profound. I think, you know, one of the ways to deal with it, because it's not going away, right? Yeah. You know, this stuff is going to stick around. We just need better strategies to engage with our technology in more intentional ways. And one of my favorite piece of advice comes from the journalist, Catherine Price. She has this lovely book called How to Break Up With Your Phone, um, where she doesn't really advise you to break up your phone, but just to develop a more mindful relationship with it. And she has this acronym that she uses called WWW. Whenever you pick up your phone, think WWW, which stands for what for, why now, and what else, right? What did I pick this up for? Was I going to do something with it? I was going to check my email or I was going to look at, you know, look at the weather or was I just like bored or anxious? What was happening, right? And then why now? What was the emotion that caused you to do it? Was it Just wrote, and you're just kind of anxiously picking it up, or is it really like to do something at that moment? You know, or is there something else you could be doing at that moment? And that gets to the sort of what else, which is like, what's the opportunity cost? You know, even if you're bored and you're going to pick up your phone to like, you know, play a game or check your email, like, what's what else could you be doing during that time that might make you happier? And the what else is often a social what else? Watching my students, right, who who I know are lonelier than they've ever been in college history, right? Um, And I think a lot of that. has to do with, ironically, has to do with technology, right? Like these devices that they're using to connect are actually leading them to not form connections in real life. And so I think this is something that we really need to understand better, right? And it's hard to do great science on this because all of us have technology, right? It's hard to get a control condition with somebody who's never like had a smartphone or social media because they might not be neurotypical in the way you would want a control group to be. But I think it's important to recognize that part of the problem of technology isn't the thing we normally think, right? when we we have these worries about technology we instantly point to social media like social media is the bad guy but actually it's just the technology and its excitement in and of itself that might be a problem one of the most striking things for me kind of taking this job um, where I'm ahead of college on campus was sort of seeing how students interact with each other in their kind of natural environment. You know, the one I think about the most is like the dining hall, right? Like when I went to college, I remember the dining hall as being like the loudest place on the planet, you know, because everybody's eating and talking and as in stories being shared and laughter and things. What was striking when I took on this new role is if you go to a college dining hall right now, I mean, there's some talking and things, but it's much quieter than I remember it. And it's much quieter than I remember it because... because... Because everyone's sitting around the dining hall with these, you know, headphones that you and I are wearing to talk to each other around with a screen out, either their phone and so on. And the students think they're being social. You know, they're probably scrolling through their Instagram feed or using one of these weird new social media apps to kind of talk to one another. But they're not physically talking to one another in the way that primates are used to. And I think it's in part because, you know, the technology is easier. You know, I remember what it was like to be a new college student and to walk to the dining hall for the first time with your tray and you have to like talk to somebody. There's like an awkward startup cost with that. And I think technology just gives us an easy way to kind of do something else. Right. You know, not going to avoid that anxiety. But it means because we don't ever get over the startup costs, we never develop these you know, kind of weak ties with people where we just chat and get that little enjoyment. It means my college students are less likely to make their clo- these close friendships. And it's one of the reasons that nationally in the U.S. right now, 60 percent of college students report being very lonely most of the time, you know, and I think it's in part because, you know, the easiest thing to do is to flop on your headphones and not talk to someone. But that means you're missing out on all these good moments where you can experience joy through social connection.
0: My next guest is the psychologist, Dr. Pippa Grange. In this clip from episode 126, she shares how we are better able to cultivate closer connections when we have the courage to be ourselves. You talk about relationships um, and how relationships are really fundamental to, I guess, our overall well-being. Why do you think relationships are so important? Why have relationships sort of become fragmented in the way we live these days? And what can we do about it?
12: I think relationships are the point. <laughs> you know, they're not just important, they're the point. You know, we've we've talked ourselves into this idea that we're all separately, as if we're walking next to each other, but we're all separately on this you know, big journey to achievement and outcomes, um, collectively, you know, if it's convenient. Um, and sometimes we might even link arms, but we've forgotten that the point, the joy, the very, um, raison d'etre, the, 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 the thing that we're here for is each other is to connect. That's where all the joy is. You know, if, if you, um, win the world cup and there's nobody in the stadium, how does that feel? or nobody's tuned in, you know, it's the shared joy of our journeys that is the point. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that we we have almost like confined our ideas about intimacy to our one relationship, you know, or to our, you know, um, to the sexual realm rather than it be like, for me, intimacy is about can I, can I just show up as me and be real and be close to you? Can hmm. I connect? Right. Um, that's intimacy. This is an intimate conversation yeah. because we're we're talking in real terms about who we are and what we care about and we're exposed, right? Yeah. But that is the juice of life. That is where the richness and zest is when we can actually connect like that, because you can't be intimate and performative.
0: Let me just sit with that mate. You can't be intimate and perform. Yeah.
12: You can't absolutely. Perf- you can't perform who you are and be real enough to be intimate. They're almost opposites, kind of ex- yeah. opposites, yeah. right? Yeah. So you know, for me, the more we can um, actually say about who we are and what we care about, the more we can sort of just expose. Okay, this this is it. Yeah.
0: How do people listening to this who go, okay, I want a bit more intimacy in my life? How do they start going about getting it?
12: When you want to move to be more intimate, this isn't something that you just start. You, you just, you know, there's no technique involved it's a journey. So I don't want people to feel like I'm not getting it. I'm not doing it properly. You know, it's a journey. It might take you years and that's okay. It's a brilliant journey, but, you know, start by eye contact. Yeah. So, you know, when you speak to somebody, can you hold their gaze? Do you revert to your phone pretty quickly when you get into an elevator or you get in the back of an Uber or something, you know, can you connect And it's different to introversion, right? I make this point in the book. People who are introverted tend to have stronger personal boundaries and prefer privacy and a richer inner world. And there's no judgment on that whatsoever because they can still have really deep intimate relationships. It's more about how are you connecting and showing up as you without guarding all of you. When you can do that and just show up, the opportunity for that energy exchange between you is is so strong. When we apologise for who we are all the time or for what we do, it gets in the way of intimacy. Just be, you know, rather than just neatening everything off. You can't do that when you're intimate. No. You know, you don't need to do that when you're intimate because you're allowed to be human.
0: So what can we do to incorporate more social connection into our lives? Well, in episode 340, I had a wonderful conversation with the author and professor of psychology, Dr. Dacher Keltner. But Dacher has spent decades studying the science of happiness. And in this next clip, he shares how experiencing awe can transform our physical and mental well-being and why one of the ways we can access this is through something called collective effervescence.
13: Every time I teach a large group of people about happiness, I'll have a mom come to me, especially post-pandemic, and they're like, you know, my 17-year-old son is in real deep distress, and what do I do? And I turn to the science of happiness and I say, man, find some social connections, get them outdoors, you know, give them a way to find meaning or reflect on life. And now awe, you know, awe. Helps your immune system, reducing inflammation. Helps your cardiovascular system, activates vagal tone. Reduces activation in the amygdala, a threat-related region in the brain. Helps you think more clearly and more creatively. Makes you feel like you have less stress in life. For 75 years old and older, it makes you feel less physical pain, right? I could go on. I mean, these are all studies where five minutes of awe, five minutes gives you that suite of benefits that I think are comparable to anything you can do, no kidding. And we didn't know that. And now it's starting to spread, right? Just yeah. to be thinking about, where are those five minutes of awe? Yeah. Something that emerged in our studies, very hard to study scientifically, collective effervescence, but it emerged as a just a surprising way to find awe. Uh, that is a term that the French sociologist Emile Durkheim coined. When he was trying to figure out, like William James did and others, like, what is the core subjective feeling of religion? And he called it collective effervescence. And it's when you start moving in unison or you're synchronizing your movements. Think of a ritual in a church, clapping, cheering at a football game, dancing together, doing rituals before a basketball game, collective movement. Then you start to realize collective movement makes you have a shared consciousness. So you're all thinking about the same thing. Yeah. The religious figure leading the ritual, the football players on the pitch, you know, the movements at a concert, the, the band singing and you're all cheering, mm. a political speech, right? Yeah. And then emotion starts taking over where people are like, I got this rush of chills, I was crying. I was almost ecstatic. I was feeling like I was one with everybody around mm-hmm. me. And that's collective effervescence, which is movement, attention, shared attention, and then this electric feeling that moves over you that makes you feel like you're united. One of the amazing things about thinking about these as contexts of awe, which they are, um, is they this allows us to find the deeper meaning in these wonderful venues like... There are studies that suggest like, you know, your football team is is almost on par with a church. It gives you that much meaning and sense of community mm-hmm. and sense of history, right? Following music and going to musical venues. Um, I love the, the work on sort of spontaneous forms of collective effervescence that, you know, people observe like pedestrians moving through streets and being at festivals or farmer's markets. You know, I was just with my daughter, Natalie, at a farmer's market and it felt there was collective effervescence. We were all moving together, getting the, the street Indian food, yeah. sharing it in a park, right? That was awesome. And, and so this framework of awe starts to allow us to see the richness of these common venues of, of awe that we can enjoy. It's interesting. A lot of the informal help your body movements like yoga, 20 million people practice yoga in the United States. And a lot of it's collective effervescence. You're doing motions together your attention
0: is shared and you start to feel this joy. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. One of the things that I've been, I guess, concerned with a little bit for a while, yeah. you know, a lot of people are struggling to find that sense of community. I agree. And one of the things I said literally a few days ago at one of my talks was, look, what do you like doing? Okay, someone said yoga. I said, okay, you like yoga. One of the big problems over the last years is that because of, Some of the restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this stuff has gone online. I know. Right. So let's take yoga as an example. Yep. For many people, a phenomenal practice that helps them physically, mentally, emotionally. And a lot of people now, in in our bid to save time and be more efficient, we go on the the Zoom class. Yeah. Uh, We do a, a 10, 15 minute YouTube video. Yeah. And again, that can have. A role, but I say, listen, if that's you, yeah, sign up for a class as well. Do 10 minutes a day on YouTube. Sure, yeah. that's great, but make sure once a week you sign up and you go to the class because, you know, that's one of the tips I give people who are struggling with loneliness is, you know, what hobby do you have? What passion do you like? Is there a local class? Go there, you'll yeah. meet other people yeah. like you. Yeah, right. So it's a very clear message throughout your book that one of the powerful qualities of awe is that it takes us outside of ourselves to something much bigger and greater, right? And, you know, if you're depressed, that's what you need. You're stuck inside yourself thinking, again, I say that with compassion. We need to help people get outside themselves. Yeah.
13: Wow. What a profound observation. And you've you've just spoken to a very important empirical question. Does solitary activity on Zoom compare to collective activity of the same thing? We know in the education world, it does not and Zoom classrooms for most people are are a disaster. Uh, you need the collective mind yeah. and and so forth. Yeah, I, I love your recommendation, Rangan. Jane Goodall, awe, she th- saw it in chimpanzees. It it me- it is the beginning of our sense of spirit because it get it allows us to be amazed at things outside of ourself. <laughs> And the central challenge of the mental health crises of today is too much self-focus. Yeah. And we're not gonna find awe with Zoom and smartphones where we're, you know, we gotta get with other people. Um, you know, I was with a minister a couple of weeks ago, Malcolm Clements Young, a remarkable mind, and he said, you know, and I suspect this is true of a lot of the domains that you refer to, you can pray by yourself, but there's something about praying with people who are praying with you Mm. together he said and and there's a lot of spiritual traditions around that meditating together you know playing ping pong with other groups of people doing dance together doing yoga together there's no substitute and the answer for that is all that it, it makes you realize your collective like jane goodall said and you said i'm amazed at things outside of myself
0: my next guest is kelly mcgonigal a u.s research psychologist lecturer at Stanford University, and best-selling author. In this next clip from episode 109, Kelly describes the incredible things that happen when we move together with other people.
14: The rewards that we get from playing an active role in our lives, literally active, being engaged, exerting ourselves, pursuing meaningful goals, and the rewards that we get from connecting with other people and being part of a community... They are so connected that it's one of the reasons why people who are physically active are less lonely. They have better relationships with other people. There's something about being sedentary that makes it more difficult to be that version of ourselves that thrives in community. And, and I don't mean, I, that sounds, I don't wanna shame anyone who doesn't exercise or, or feels like they can't for physical or mental health reasons. And yet at the same time, I feel like it's really important to express this message that to whatever degree you can move your body, it makes you a different version of yourself that is not, it's not even just better for other people. It allows you to experience that core human joy of interdependence. You know, there's there's so many important dimensions of social community. They're your close relationships, you know, your partnerships in life, your family. But it's so important to have social relationships that are a little bit casual, but where you know you can show up and belong, where people are happy to see you. And when you're having a bad day, they give you you know, just that level of support where it's okay to be who you are and there are people who care. And it's amazing how much movement facilitates that level of connection where you're sort of allowed to be who you are. When things are difficult, people support you in this kind of easy way that we sometimes don't find in our close relationships where, you know, things get very complicated. One of the reasons why movement and things like park run or things like like my dance classes help people experience that is movement often asks us to be the best version of ourselves and also good friends to other human beings. So, you know, you go for a run and it's just so natural to cheer other people on. Like if you finish first to support other people in finishing, it's so natural to receive that support. It's like an easier place to allow yourself to be congratulated and supported. We get to practice these kind of rituals of just like easy human interdependence and things like runs and Ninja Warrior training, and all these other places where where people experiencing connection. it's because like you're asked to do things that are a little bit hard. and then when you do it, people, people congratulate you and see your strength, and you get to do that for others. And there's this kind of bigger than self effort and bigger than self joy that people experience. That is, uh, some psychologists call it a sense of a we agency. Now like, you get together and you're doing something. And you experience a sense of self that literally transcends the borders of your skin and your your body. You feel connected to almost like a community is like an organism in itself. I mean, it's such like we could get into the neuroscience of this, but literally if you're running in a pack or you're in a dance class and you're moving in sync with other people, your brain starts to expand its sense of awareness So that you literally can, like the people you see running in stride with you or the people you see moving in a dance class with you, your brain is like, that's happening at the same time that my brain is saying run or stretch your arm. And it just starts to assume I'm part of something bigger, an organism that's all moving as one. And it creates this this amazing sense of self-transcendence.
0: Next, we'll hear again from The Happy Pair. Part of their daily routine involves walking down to their local beach at sunrise and jumping in for a swim. They explain how it all started and why a community of like-minded people now join them to start the day together in this incredible way.
9: Dave was uh, down walking Elsie, his first child, uh, to sleep, as you do at 5am in the morning, yeah, yeah, seven years ago. And the sun rose and Dave took a picture and put it up on social media and people really connected with it because it was a symbol of hope, new dawn, beauty, nature. You know, it was very simple. There was a purity to it. So we got in the habit of going down to see sunrise because we used to get up at half four to go into the fruit market. So we enjoyed those early hours of the day. And we were down there and I remember it was a rainy day and it was, it was September and it was kind of cold. And I was down taking a picture of the sunrise and there was a fella there and he said, do you want to get in there, lads? And I'll, I'll mind your, your gear. And it was like, and if anything happens, I'll get in and save you. It was like, 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 I don't really want to do this, but here's a man, challenge me. It's like, of course I'll do it. And in I got and I came out and we got chatting and he said his name was Neil and he said, I'll see you here tomorrow at the same time. I was like, Okay. So went down the next day. And then there was Caroline, another friend, Caroline Barrington. She was on the beach and she came and joined us. And we swam together at sunrise. And then we got out. And then afterwards, see you again tomorrow. So we did that for a September. And then it was like, I wonder if we're going to keep this going. And then Hugo joined us. And then Fran joined us. And then we'd go on the 1st of October. And we'd end up jokingly going, Oh, we've paid our membership for October. We've got to keep going. And we've suddenly done it for about two and a half years. And we. Um, Every morning? every morning when we're at home and um, we'd put things up on social media and I started using Snapchat about two or three years ago and it's very of the moment like as in uh, I'm going to have lunch now does anyone want to come and someone actually shows up in a physical form so right. you're you're taking this digital platform and it's actually connecting in the physical realm so I remember we used to get hundreds of messages from people going oh, I'd love to come and join you but they didn't realise sunrise was at 4 you You'd get at 4.30am there was a wind that was would have skinned you the water was 2 degrees reason the air temperature was zero. So it was it was quite a bracing experience, albeit phenomenal and very invigorating. So I remember it was summer and I remember going, this was a Tuesday morning. I put it up in Snapchat, right? Enough of these messages. We're having a public swim rise. Everyone's invited. We're meeting at the Happy Pair at 4:30 a.m. because sunrise was at 4:50, and this was the big hook. There's going to be free porridge, and we're going to bring tea. Uh, so I met Dave that Thursday morning at 4 a.m. to prepare the porridge, and I wasn't sure. You know, I thought there might be five people. There might be Raj, Mark, maybe a few others, maybe the usual crew, uh, and we couldn't find a small pot, so we ended up cooking a big pot, and we walk out at. 4.30 a.m., and there's about 150 people. We walked in the middle of the road, down to the sea, the sun rises, it was a beautiful experience. And subsequently, we've probably had 500, 700 people do it, like big ones. And now that, that's for these kind of big public swim rise events which we've done, really just to celebrate community and the simple act of kind of, you know, the sunrise is such a symbol of hope and and dawn and a new beginning. And like, it's a great opportunity to come along, meet like-minded people and enjoy in this basic, simple thing of swimming at sunrise. Uh, And nowadays, pretty much every day of the week, we get people from all over the world come and join us. You know, like there, there was a guy from Alaska stopped over a week. There was a guy from Boston came over. So it's
0: because it's a thing and people know it's going to be happening. And when you guys are in town, you will be there at the ocean in the morning. Yeah, then
9: at sunrise. And there's there's a a lot of cross demographics. There could be Linda and Detty. I think Detty just turned 69. Linda's 70. There could be Neil, who's like 45. There's a, there's a great cross-section of people who come and do it. And like, although you swim in the sea, it's, it's cold. So it brings you back to the present moment. It's quite bracing. You forget what you're stressing about. You come out and then you share tea with people. You have great chats, great friendship, great joy that it's, that although in winter it might seem like quite a stoic pursuit or kind yeah, of crazy absolutely. activity. On the way down, you're, it's raining, it's miserable. You're going, am I Crazy, like this is ridiculous, and then you come back on. Oh my god, that was amazing! Because you just—do just, your kids endorphins. ever come with you? Yeah, 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 kids do. Kids do come with us. But I was going to say two things on that is like we often call it C because it's just the best medicine there is of all. Yeah. We'll often go down, and you'll kind of say. I Like, I don't always like the person getting into the sea, but I love the person coming out because it's such a, like, it brings you back to the present moment like nothing else. And there's lots of medical studies now backing this up and yeah, cold, cold water, water swimming, therapy yeah. and in terms of invigorating your immune system, your your whole kind of body and, and your mental health primarily. Really,
0: Yeah, there's quite a bit of work going on about how it could be a treatment for depression as well, yeah, potentially. Yeah. And it, it's just incredible. You have created a community where not only yourselves, but many other people also go into the ocean every morning oh, it's, it's in more- Ireland, even in the winter, which is just incredible in itself. But I'm interested on an individual level, You know what benefits have you felt in your own life from having that sort of morning ritual? I think it's one of the highlights
9: of our days, honestly, and I can say me personally, like sometimes you'll go, oh geez, it's so early, I don't feel like it and it can be challenging. And then you'll walk down to, you'll meet, a, there might be a couple of people at the shop and we'll, we'll make tea, we usually make a four litre flask of tea and we'll bring some little snacks because it's as much the community and the chats after are as important as to see. And we'll walk down and you'll kind of go, geez, are we crazy? And then you'll suddenly turn around the corner to the beach and you'll see the light, you'll see the dawn. You're like, you'll suddenly, my spirit's a lift. We'll get down to the beach. There'll be It's this sense of overcoming this obstacle. We're getting in this cold water together. And, uh, And you'll meet people on the beach and in we go.
0: One of the most powerful things we can do is to give to others. Be that our money, our time, our friendship, or our compassion. In this next clip, we'll hear again From Professor Laurie Santos as she reveals Why helping others is what will truly make us happy
8: happy people are disproportionately other-oriented. They, like, matched for a salary level, give more of their money to charities than people who are not so happy. They um, give more of their time. They volunteer, right? They just tend to be more focused on helping other people than in kind of doing selfish pursuits. Um, And the research shows that then if you go and do an intervention where you force people to do nice stuff for others, um, that will actually improve people's well-being more than they think. This is actually a study by Liz Dunn, who we mentioned earlier. She goes up to people on the and hands them some money and says, okay, you just got this money. Here's how you have to spend it. One group is told you have to spend this on yourself. Do something nice. Treat yourself. Um, Another group is told the way I want you to spend this money is to do something nice for someone else, right? Um, Then she has subjects agree that they can be called later in the day or later that week. And what she finds is that subjects who spend the money on other people tend to be significantly happier than those uh, who spend the money on themselves. Now, this is not, again, what we think, right? But it's what the data show. And again, you know, I teach this class, but I get this into Wrong. If I'm having a crappy day, you know, I'd be like, I'm going to go out and get myself a latte, or I'm going to get a manicure, right? I don't think like I'm going to go buy my coworker a latte right now, or I'm going to like you know do a, get a little gift card for my friend to get a manicure. Like I think me, me, me. But the data suggests that like just sort of switching gears, spending our money and our time on other people is a way to bump up our happiness.
0: When you're kind to someone, it's not just that person who benefits. Kindness also makes you happier. It's good for your heart, it helps support your immune system, it slows down aging, and it improves our relationships. Back in episode 104, I spoke to the wonderful pharmacist turned author, Dr. David Hamilton. And in this next clip, he shares some wonderful research which shows why kindness, compassion, and connection are so beneficial for our happiness and our health. This is becoming clearer and clearer to me. This, for me, is the missing link in healthcare.
15: It's definitely changing. People are far more aware of it, or of the way in which even the way you talk to someone, how that can make them feel. In fact, there was a study on, on doctor visits over 700 patients with symptoms of the cold or flu and they were they participated in it was called a care study consultation and relational empathy and they secretly had to give the 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 doctor a score between zero and ten on the empathy that they showed during that visit and those who scored the doctor a perfect 10 out of 10 their immune response to the same condition was 50 percent higher than everyone else And and it just came down to empathy yeah how I mean- it made them feel and what you're seeing is how them, how you feel then is physically affecting your the function of the immune system and i think
0: that's the key isn't it that it's it's
15: not just in your head. It's changing things biologically, physiologically. That deep connection has tremendous physical effects. In fact, one of the side effects, I suppose, of feel that feeling connected or feeling good about it is affectionately known as the Mother Teresa effect. I think it was a study, I think it was at Yale or one of the other big American universities. They got over 100 people to watch a 50-minute video of Mother Teresa on the streets of Calcutta demonstrating care and compassion to uh, to homeless people and at the end of the study their levels of a little immune antibody in the saliva called siga went up by about 50% for no reason other than just watching the video and it stayed elevated for an hour or two afterwards and that's because for the hour or two afterwards they were still talking about didn't remember that part when mother teresa she sat down beside that old, really elderly gent And they didn't say a word. She just sat beside him. She took his hand and laid her head against his shoulder just so that he wouldn't feel alone at that time. And just that emotional bonding experience of watching them on that video spiked the immune system. It just lifted that little antibody level.
0: So, so it's not just the person who received that, it's also if you're watching Absolutely.
15: that. It's watching it as well, because it comes down to how it makes you feel. If you can feel a sense of connection from being the person who, for, in this case, is delivering kindness or compassion, being on the receiving end, or watching someone else, whether it's live or even on a video, it has more or less the same effect. Uh,
0: and I guess, you know, that could be why you know, if you watch a really good film that really moves you and connects you and you feel like crying or you feel like you've really connected with it. I don't know that's been studied, but I wouldn't be- It has actually. Has
15: it? it, There was a a clip of, of Oprah Winfrey during the time of the Oprah show and she was really changing people's lives. And it was something to do with a school teacher in a class and what people watching it were moved to tears and felt so uplifted. And it produced high levels of- what i call the kindness hormone oxytocin it's also called the bonding hormone the cuddle chemical but it produced high levels of that simply by feeling and moved and inspired by watching a, a, like a five minute clip from from what used to be the oprah winfrey yeah. show
0: yeah i mean it's really incredible the sort of things you're talking about uh, human touch connection all these kind of i guess what we would call the softer yeah. components of health you're saying alongside physical exercise, physical activity, is the most important thing for your
15: cardiovascular health. I don't think many people would be familiar yeah. with that as an idea. Yeah, just, just warmth and connection, but because they produce oxytocin. So you can f- you can create that sense through generosity and kindness, compassion, empathy, all of anything that generates that sense of warmth and connection, we, we know produces oxytocin. But what's interesting is all the research showing the physiological effects of, I call it the kindness hormone, really to distinguish between stress hormones, because physiologically in many ways, kindness is the opposite of stress in terms of how it makes you feel. I mean, if you ask anyone, what's the opposite of stress? Most people say, oh, it's peace or it's calm, but that's not technically the opposite of stress. That's the absence of stress. Physiologically speaking, if you look at the physical effects of stress and you look at the physical effects of the feeling that you get through kindness which is warmth and connection then they're physiologically opposite even psychologically there's some studies showing that you know emotionally we get the opposite effects because because many of this the physical effects of stress are not because of a situation but because of how you feel when you're in that situation, because two people could be stuck in traffic and one person's feeling stressed and they're producing adrenaline and cortisol. The other person's feeling relaxed. They're not producing much at all. So it's not necessarily the traffic. It's how you feel. So if the feelings of stress generate stress hormones. But when you be kind and those feelings you get of warmth and connection, they generate Oxytocin. I call this them. I call it a kindness hormone. To make that distinction, that it's a physical, it's a hormone that gets produced because of how you're feeling in that moment, which you initiate through empathy, compassion, touch, emotional warmth, any 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 of these soft behaviours. And, and understanding this explains a, a large body of research that we knew. The, the trend in the past, but we didn't know why it worked that way. For example, why people with better quality relationships have better cardiovascular systems, why things like hostility and aggression is correlated with higher levels of hardening of the arteries. We didn't know why that is, but now the evidence seems to suggest that you know aggression and hostility, for example, reduce levels of the kindness hormone oxytocin. And therefore we, we take away a vital part of cardio protection because oxytocin is now, def- now called a cardio protective hormone, meaning it protects the cardiovascular system. One of the ways it does it is to, to reduce blood pressure. So, so I, I love explaining it in that sense that it's physically the opposite of stress because of how it makes you feel. Yeah. So you can feel that way through being the giver, being the receiver, or being the person who's watching a nice moment taking place.
0: David, my my mind is blown. This is, um, yeah, this is so fascinating.
15: You know, I, I I often suggest to people that make kindness a practice, practice thinking kind thoughts about people. You know, if you find yourself about to say something about someone, stop for a minute and even just make an attempt, you know, not going to do it all the time, but some of the times make an attempt to think, I wonder if that person's struggling in their life right now. I know I'm talking about their behavior yesterday, but I wonder if they're struggling right now. You never know. I wonder if that, that man or woman is a good parent. I wonder what their relationship was with the parents. And just change the dialogue. And what that does, it introduces empathy and it introduces a different way of thinking. And not always successful, but oftentimes it will make you feel a little bit more kind to, towards the person. I think if we develop little practices, then kindness becomes a habit so that it's the go-to. It's the first thought is the compassionate thought, the kind thought. And then the way in which you speak to people, the way in which you interact with people becomes more gentle and more warm because it becomes a habit. And that I think becomes your way. And I'm speaking from experience here because I, I have completely changed as a person. In the, and during the time that I've been really working on the mind-body connection, but particularly when I've been focusing on kindness, I, mean, I wasn't meaning as a horrible person, but relative, I have made large gains, yeah. I guess, in the, I guess the quality of person that I, I, I've become and I've become gentler more compassionate, more kind. I cry a lot more. I don't know if that's related to it, but I'm much softer than I was maybe 10 years ago. And, it, and it's a consequence of my awareness yeah. of what kindness and compassion is and, and what it does for us.
0: By the age of 18, John McAvoy was one of the UK's most notorious armed robbers, and he spent 10 years in maximum security prisons. During that time, he transformed his life And he's now a man on a mission to make amends Coming up is a clip from episode 91 When we spoke about the role that we can all play in society To ensure the health and happiness of our communities But first, we'll hear again from Pippa Grange As she explains the concept of One Health
12: one of the things i'm loving at the moment that i'm reading about is one health so the idea of you know um instead of health being a phenomena within your body um within your the package of you as one human being it is an intersection between you animal species and the planet you know which we're kind of seeing right now with covid right so i think is a much more humble but much more rational actually position to step back and say well, of course, my health can't be just within my own body. It's ours. It's an us thing, including the planet and other species. So, you know, that gets categorized as woo-woo. That gets yeah. into the alternate. And I think, well, that that's just because we haven't evolved our thinking enough yeah. yet. This this zeitgeist we're in was alternate at one point.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, Pepper, I'm I'm sure that this is why I feel, it's funny, like, I'll I'll share this. I feel a real deep connection to you, even though I never met you until about an hour ago, because as I read that book, there was so much in it that made me feel something deeply. And what you just said about One Health, now I haven't thought about it in the term of One Health, but something I've been sitting with for a few months is this idea that health has been a very individualistic pursuit, like many things in society. And can we truly be you know, in inverted commas, healthy if the planet around us is sick no. or the people in our community are struggling.
12: We're not separate, No, but culturally we see ourselves as separate. Health-wise, we see ourselves as separate. We have to move away from I to we. We have to move away from single ideas to multiple possibilities and I think that's just where we're right at the cusp of now and for me some of the reasons we don't step into that curiosity or creativity are fear. Yeah.
16: I was genuinely surprised by the further along the journey I've gone since I've been released from prison the social difference in this country is and how so few have so much and and so many have so little to the degree where children, the, like a headmaster once phoned me up when it was snowing. Now I remember when I was at school, snow day, I was loving it, didn't have school. I yeah. didn't have school, like you'd be off school for three or four days, I was loving it. And headmaster phoned me up in Essex and I, I developed a really close relationship with him. And he said, I've, I've, we've had to close the school. And, and I've said, oh, I bet the kids love it. And he said, he said, John, he said, I feel so bad because I know today for the next two or three days probably that probably about 70% of my school will not eat a meal for breakfast or lunch. Cause they're solely reliant on the school providing those meals because the kids aren't eating when they're home. Cause they haven't they haven't the mums and dads haven't got the money or they haven't got the food to eat.
0: I mean, this sort of inequality is it's staggering. And it's not something we, I typically talk a lot about on this podcast, but I think it's an important topic. And as I try and talk to more and more varied people about different things, about you know, it's all ultimately how to live better, how we can all live better lives. And I think we live better lives, not only when we feel better individually, but when society is happier yes. and healthier around us. Yep. It's very hard to be happy when, yes, you're individually doing well, but people around you are struggling. Yes.
16: But we are all on the same rock. Yeah. We're all on this earth at the same moment in time in history. Like we all were here together, and yeah. we're all going to end up in the same six foot hole at the end of it. So again, my belief is the fact we should work together and we should help other people, yeah. and th- and that's what life should be about. It shouldn't be about profit constantly, like yeah. selling you stuff constantly. It should be about working together and helping you, helping yeah. your fellow man. Because like you said, society community becomes so much better by living that yeah. sort
0: of existence. And finally. To conclude this week's special compilation episode, we'll hear some powerful closing thoughts from Dr. Julian Abel. Somewhere along the line, this capitalist society where we've been encouraged to buy more, get more things, get more stuff, you know, get these houses, insulate ourselves off from people around us. We've kind of lost it somewhere, haven't we? That actually,
7: it's it's who we are as humans. I think that's right. That we have been led to believe that acquisition is the way of happiness. That we have, if we have beauty, if we have lots of goods, uh, that's how we're going to become happy. In my work as a palliative care physician, you know, I talked to literally thousands of people about dying and about what was important in their lives. And often, through the course of the illness, people felt a diminished sense of self because they couldn't do the things that they recognized as being important to them. But with the people around them, they appreciated the people around them for their love and their care and their friendship. And so we tend to have this kind of dual standard of thinking about acquisition as being meaningful for ourselves, but we appreciate the people around us for the quality of the character they have.
0: It sounds like you're saying that we judge other people differently from the way we judge ourselves.
7: It, precisely. I mean, it was a it was a conversation I had with nearly every one of my patients. I would say, look, um, have a think about the people who you really appreciate the most and why you appreciate them and and people would say it's about the about their love about their kindness and they would say has the love and the kindness diminished in you even though you're not able to do the things that you usually do and of course the love and the kindness is still there and 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 i would say we don't need to be terminally ill to appreciate that. That's something that we can do now in our lives. If, if you like the people around you for the qualities of their character, these it's, it's kind of at the heart of it all is yeah. in like, well, you can, you can develop those qualities yourself. You don't have to become a saint. You can just do a little bit and become a slightly kinder, a more compassionate person the people who used to impress me the most were the people who came to the end of their lives and, and they weren't great businessmen or didn't have massive achievement, but they approached death with a sense of peace. And when I asked them about that, they said, well, I've had a good life. I've I uh, I've had good people around me. I've had great children. I love my love my husband and my wife and and I feel satisfied with the way that life went. And to be so open and face death in this peaceful way to me was really inspirational and impressive. And then uh, I remember one gentleman who I treated who was a great international business leader and uh, and he was talking about um, talking about this subject, and his his wife was there, and he was saying, "I I can't do, I can't run my businesses, and who am I?" and and so we talked about appreciating people for who they are, and why he loved his wife, and and all of that, and then his wife popped up and said, "People loved you." Uh, for who you are not because you were a great business leader and she encapsulated that so perfectly just the way that she said it and and of course he understood about the powerful impact of the kindness and the quite a lot of the the physical and emotional suffering that he had got better quite quickly and and he was able to die peacefully with that and and i think that it absolutely gives you a sense of what's important in life and what's not quite so important
0: yeah i think many of us myself included need that reminder about what truly is important i think we we get so caught up in small things don't we actually when it's all said and done it it comes down to connection and relationships that's what we value the most really hope you enjoyed today's special compilation episode of course all the clips you heard were from previous conversations on my podcast so do consider going back to the original episodes if you want to hear more from some of your favorite guests and as always what is the one thing you can take away and apply into your own life not only that what is the one thing from this compilation episode that you can teach to somebody else Remember, when you teach someone else, it not only helps them, it also helps you learn and retain the information. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday5. And at this time of year, if you are looking for gifts for your friends, your family, your work colleagues, might I suggest you check out some of my own books. I have written five books over the past few years that have been bestsellers all over the world. I've written about all kinds of topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change, movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember... You are the architect of your own health Making lifestyle changes is always worth it Because when you feel better You live more